Amen. Lord, I just thank you that we can be in your presence. What an incredible thing that men and women, children, people like us, Lord, can come into the presence of Almighty God, the creator of the universe, not because of our good works, but because of your great grace. Lord, I just pray right now as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Lord, I just pray that for the sake of your people, you would use this marred and imperfect vessel for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. If you don't have a Bible, I know Bill already mentioned it. Raise your hand. Maybe you came in late. You're going to need it. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 20, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. All right. It's good to see you guys. I love being here. Amen. Well, tonight's message I titled, A Heart for the Battle. And as we've been going through Deuteronomy, what we've been seeing is Moses' second giving of the law to the next generation as they prepare to go into the land of promise. First ten chapters was him reminding them of the mistakes of the previous generation, that they would not repeat them. Then from chapter 11 on, he was instructing them, preparing them, as they were to enter in to the land of promise. He talked to them about the blessings of obedience. He talked to them about what worship was really to be when they got there. He talked to them about what God felt about other religions and other gods. He taught them how to live for God with all of their lives. He, he taught them what agape love is and what love is in action. The source of true wisdom is the Word of God. How to have a heavenly focus to keep their eyes on God. And then last week, we looked at godly justice. And you guys remember that part. He was talking to them about how they were to rule amongst themselves. There was no police, there was no government. And so what happened was that when somebody committed a crime, it was up to the families to keep justice as well as the priests. And so what they did, if you remember the city of refuge last week, the city of refuge is a picture of... Oh, that was just wrong. Man, you know, when you prepare for 30 hours, you teach a message, you think people might remember it, but... City of Refuge is a picture of Jesus. Jesus. There you go. That a baby. I feel, now I feel better, okay? If you remember, the cities of refuge were placed all over as they went into the land of promise, and there were some key things about the city of refuge. It had to be a place that was nearby, had easy access. They had roads that they made to the cities of refuge, and they kept them up well. They had signs that marked them, and a city of refuge was a place where a manslayer, where we get the word manslaughter, somebody who accidentally brought harm to someone else, killed somebody else, could run to to get justice. And we talked about last week that being, again, a picture of Christ because as the city of refuge was always nearby, as they didn't have to crawl over a mountain or walk through a river to get there, it was always close at hand. And that's important when somebody's chasing you to kill you, right? Because somebody in the family, it was their job to be the the person in the family, the, the, the avenger, a picture of the enemy, right? But the one who brought justice and the avenger would be chasing you down and you wanted to know quickly where I could get to a place and find safety, And that's the Lord. He's always near to us. We don't have to climb over mountains or crawl through rivers to get to Him. He did all the work, and we just simply need to turn to Him. We also saw last week, He talked about not stealing their their neighbor's landmark. We talked about how we should learn from the generations that have gone before us. And then lastly, He talked about the standard for acceptable evidence. Again, what has that got to do with us? But He said there must be two or three witnesses. And for you and I, we should learn to be slow in the way we judge others. Don't just listen to the word of one person. 
And I, because often, again, people can even be wrong. Even if they're not lying, they can be wrong because they're, you know, we're people and we do that. And then to speak the truth in love. Now this week, we're going to go from looking at godly justice or God's standard for how the children of Israel were to deal with the crime in the land, now to a heart for battle. And God's instruction to the children of Israel in dealing with the enemies they would face, both in Canaan and later in the surrounding cities. So the first nine verses, we're going to look at preparation for the battle. And you might wonder, again, we're going to be talking like military stuff. And just like last week, we were were talking about criminal justice. You thought, how does that have anything to do with my life? Well, as we saw, very clear applications for us. And as we look at these military instruction that's going on, very clear application for us, as everything in the Bible does. So the first thing we're going to see is the preparation for the battle. Because you need to understand something. They were going into the land flowing with milk and honey, but when they got there, it didn't mean things were going to be perfect. And too often we think if we're walking in the center of God's will, we'll never have any problems. Well, we will, but there'll be problems that God allows to come into our life that He might be glorified and that we might be, grow closer to Him. Amen? Now, if we're in rebellion against God, the troubles in our life aren't necessarily things that are going to make us grow. They may be just things that are going to cause us great harm because we're in rebellion we're outside of God's will. And so these guys are about to go into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise, a picture for us of the Spirit-filled life. So you're walking in the fullness of the Spirit. God's hand is upon you. You're walking with the Lord. You've grown in the Lord. You're closer to Him than you've ever been before. Does that mean everything's going to be perfect? Answer is absolutely not. And if anything, as we're going to see tonight, that one of the places the enemy loves to attack are those who are being used most mightily by God. Satan's resources are limited. Who's he going after? Those who God is using. You know what? I want my life to be so on fire for God that Satan is, I'm on his hit list. Amen? I want to be on his hit list because that means God's using me. If I'm under the radar and Satan doesn't know who I am, that's not good. Because that means I'm not doing anything for the kingdom of God. Amen? And so as they're about to go into this land of promise, there's preparation for the battle because they're not going in to be sightseers. They're not going to the land of promise to sit around and go, yeah, nice figs, hey, big grapes, right? That's not what they're called to do. He said, you're going to go in there. When you get there, there are going to be enemies waiting for you. And you know what? You need to be prepared for the battle. And part of the preparations we're going to see tonight is the proper heart, proper faith, and the proper focus for those who enlisted to serve and those chosen to lead them. And then we're going to see instructions for the battle itself, how they were to approach and deal with their enemies, both inside of Canaan and out. So let's begin looking at a heart for the battle, preparation for the battle, the proper heart, faith, and focus for those enlisted to serve in the battle, not to enter into warfare lightly or unprepared. Look at verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies. I love that it says when. It doesn't say if, does it? It says when you go out to battle against your enemies. As Israel prepared to enter into the land of promise, God's highest, they could rest assured that the enemy was going to be waiting for them. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Aren't there some promises in the Bible like, I could just let that one go by. I have a great promise for you. As you serve God, the enemy's going to turn up the heat against you. Oh, I don't like that. But if you understand that through that, you're going to grow and you're going to become more like the Lord, conform more into His image, then praise God. And he says, when you go out to battle against your enemies. So this is something that was an absolute fact that was going to happen. The Jews, again, weren't entering in to be sightseers, but soldiers. And they needed to be prepared for the battle, fully expecting that God would bring the glory. 
bring the victory, excuse me. So too, you and I, as we walk in the center of God's will, empowered by the Holy Spirit, rest assured the enemy will be waiting for us, but also know that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? And we have nothing to fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So Israel faced a physical battle, but we're not really involved with a physical battle anymore. Certainly there's physical ailments and things like that, but we are involved in a spiritual battle. It says in Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the battle can be won as we put on the whole armor of God and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot defeat the enemy in your flesh. You'll lose every single time. You wonder why you're struggling. You wonder why you can't overcome temptation. You wonder why. Because the Bible says that God never brings temptation beyond what you are able, right? God always brings a way of escape. But why is it we so continually fall into temptation? Because we're not walking in the Spirit. Because we're not spending time in God's Word. Because we haven't put on the whole armor of God that's listed in Ephesians 6. We haven't, we're not seeking God with our whole heart. We get our eyes off of God. We start pursuing the things of the world. And now we're operating in the flesh. And guess what? We're a sitting duck for the enemy. And so he's saying preparation is key. You guys are going into battle. There's going to be an enemy waiting for you. And you need to be prepared. Your heart needs to be right. Your focus needs to be right. You need to have faith. You need to be faithful, not faithless. Because if you're faithless, you're going to be defeated. We are no match for the enemy when we're operating in the flesh. But as we're being filled with the Holy Spirit, we we may withstand the evil one. The key is that we be desperate for God. Be desperate for God. My nephew called me from, from England a couple years ago when he was youth pastor there, and he was getting ready to start, and his first week was coming up, and he said to me, Pastor Dave, or Uncle Dave, Uncle Dave, I'm getting ready to start, and if you could give me any advice, what would it be for someone in the ministry? And I said, I'm going to give you two words. Just remember these, discipline and desperation. You be disciplined in your preparation. You prepare like it all depends on you, and you be desperate for God like it all depends on Him. Amen? And you know what? That's the heart he wanted these guys to have. He wanted them to be disciplined and faithful, but he wanted them to be desperate for the Lord. Their hearts needed to be prepared. And look what it says there. And see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you. Now, isn't it easy to say, yeah, I trust that God's in control until we see an enemy that's like way bigger than us? It's real easy in theory to believe that God's faithful, right? Oh, yeah, God's faithful. Yeah, God's faithful. Absolutely. Diagnose of cancer, what happened? Right? The bigger the enemy, then we find out where our, how great our faith really is. And we start to become fearful. Israel, a small nation, was surrounded by great empires and was almost always outnumbered in both troops and weaponry. How many chariots did the Israelites have? That'd be zero. So you see an army way bigger than you. They've got armor and they've got chariots, and you're thinking, we're toast. We're not going to win. There's no way. We've lost. We can't fight these guys. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened when the spies went into the land, right? The previous generation went in and saw these very same people and said, there's no way. They're bigger than us. There are more of them than us. They've got armor. We don't. We can't win. Forget it. Let's quit. Now, God told them to go, but because of fear and faithlessness, they missed out on God's highest, and they wandered in the wilderness until they died. Great application for us. God has, wants to do great things with us. Amen? God wants to do great things with you. Let me make it personal. 
He wants to do great things with you, but you will miss out on God's highest if you don't trust in the Lord. If you look at the size of your circumstances and the size of the enemy, you're going to run away. It's one thing if, you know, they put you in a wrestling match and, and Pee Wee Herman comes out. You feel pretty good, right? They, they roll Goliath out there at 11 foot 750. And what happens? All the Israelites, right? They're all wimping out. Big guys wimping out. Guys with armor wimping out. Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else, wimps out. David comes along delivering cheese to his brother, a, chef, a shepherd boy with no armor. says, I'll fight him. Why? Because everybody else saw 11 foot 750 against mere man, and he saw mere man against Almighty God. And that's the heart that they needed to have as they walked in to the land of promise because the enemy was going to be waiting for them. And you and I too need to have that same heart. All of us are going to go through difficult circumstances that seem overwhelming. Some of you might be in them right now. Like, how in the world am I going to get out of this? You're not going to. This is how we find out and know how great your God is. You'll never know how great God is until you have to trust Him completely. You'll never know how great God is until your circumstances are beyond your control and there's absolutely no way out. You'll never know how great God is until your back is against the Red Sea and the chariots are marching in against you with the Egyptians and spears and you're done. Then you get to see the greatness of God when the sea parts and you walk through on dry land. It's not until the enemy comes and you're backed up to the Red Sea that you get to see the hand of God. Again, we have to rely upon God that our faith may grow. We have to come to a place where we cannot do it ourselves. And look what he says here. Do not be afraid of them. Okay, I'll just do that. Sounds easy, right? Is it? It's not. We all struggle at times. While this is our natural reaction when faced with a great enemy or difficult circumstances, it shouldn't be our reaction as we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Fear, anxiety, worry, and depression are all the opposite of faith. When I'm afraid, I'm saying God's really not in control. When I'm anxious, I'm saying God's really not going to come through. He's not going to come through. I'm anxious, right? Worry. Well, God, God forgot about me. He's, he doesn't, right? It's all the opposite of depression. I'm depressed because I'm trusting in me. I'm looking at my circumstances. I've got my eyes off of God. Will we be depressed if our eyes are on Jesus? So the problem is that we get our eyes off of God, and someone tells us we need Prozac or something. No, we don't. We need Jesus. Amen? We don't need Zoloft or Prozac. We need Jesus. And you know what? When we're anxious and we're, we turn our eyes upon the Lord. Set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. Do not be afraid. But the army's huge. You don't understand. They got chariots. We don't. They're going to kill us. God says, I'm on your side. And that should be enough. Amen? You plus God is the majority. You plus God against 10 million people, majority. One angel wiped out hundreds of thousands of people. Did you know that? One angel. What do you think Almighty God could do? He's on your side. Amen? And too often we look at the physical and we're overwhelmed because we forget that God is with us. Don't fear. Why not? Look what he says. For the Lord your God is with you. If you underline stuff in your Bible, you should underline that. For the Lord your God is with you. You are never alone. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on my side, my best friend created the universe. I love when people try to impress me. My best friend's this, and my friend's this. And especially when I lived in Southern California, people would always talk to me. Because you know, down there, movie stars everywhere. Well, I'm real good friends with, you know, Sylvester Stallone. I'm good friends with so-and-so. I'm good friends. I'm like, you know what? My best friend created those guys. <laughs> my best friend put all the stars in the sky. How about that? You know what I mean? 
I mean, let's understand and get some perspective. Our God is greater than anything. And we need to remember that we're His children. And be ready for the battle because greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. The size of your fear is related to the size of your God. You are fearful if you don't really believe that God is as great as He says He is. Amen? We look at our circumstances and we, we, we believe until the circumstances get rough and then we stop trusting. But Lord, but, but, but this is when we get to see how great God is. The greater the trials, the greater we get to see the hand of God move. Sometimes the size of our circumstances can cause us to forget the greatness of our God. And as we talked about, that's what happened with the spies. They wouldn't enter in. They forgot. Now remember this. What did the spies just witness days before? They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the, the, the angel of death and all the Egyptian firstborn die. They saw the locusts and they saw the frogs and the lice and you know, the, the water being turned to blood. And now they come out and the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire that leads them and the Red Sea opens up. And then God speaks from Mount Sinai. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And they're so like, whoa. They say, don't ever talk to us again. You send Moses up there. They heard the voice of God. Then they saw God's judgment come when the people were worshiping around the golden calf. And they saw the mighty hand of God over and over and over. And then they get there and they go, those people are just too big for us. Can't take them. You know what? The Egyptian army was bigger than any of those armies. But what happened? We got amnesia. We forget about what God can do. Amen? And so it's so awesome. Praise God for trials. Count all joy, my brethren, when we fall into various trials because it keeps our eyes on Jesus. The result was faithlessness, and they missed out on God's highest. And look what he says there next. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He reminded the next generation of what God had done for them. He had delivered them out of bondage. Now this is a picture for us of how we should be dealing with our trials. As we prepare to go into battle, the spiritual battle, we need to first remember the ultimate deliverance. Bondage in Egypt is a picture of sin in the world. Amen? He said He brought you out of bondage in Egypt. He brought us out of sin and death. We're new creations in Christ. We're going to see that on Sunday. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. New creations in Christ. That's who we are. And praise God for that. And we should not take that lightly or forget it. And you know, if we remember who we belong to, if we remember that we're a child of the king, then it doesn't matter how big the enemy is anymore because our God's greater than that. And he says very clearly, he brought you out of the land of Egypt. He saved you. He redeemed you. Should increase our faith in the light of future trials. Verse 2. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priests shall approach and speak to the people. So they're getting ready to go out to battle, and who comes out to speak to them first? Not the general, but the priest. And I like that. Because who did they want to hear from before they went into battle? They want to hear from the Lord. Amen? They wanted, God, what's your heart? God, what's your direction? God, what's your will? The priest came and spoke to the people as they're about to enter in to remind them of all of God's promises, to give them a godly focus in the face of an overwhelming enemy. The priest would come up and say, just remember, we're going to see in the next couple of verses, remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Remember who your dad is. Right? Who's your daddy? My daddy created the universe. Amen? Who, who, is, who is your father? Who are you serving? Who are you following? Who's going with you into this battle? And the priest comes out and encourages him. You know, as a pastor today, much of my counsel to others is focused on reminding them of who they are in Christ. 
and all of God's promises. That is so much of what I do. You know, it's interesting. People come in for counseling, and the prescription, as we talk about in the office, is almost always the same. Almost always. Here's my problem. You know what? You need to be spend more time with the Lord. You need to be in fellowship more. You need to spend more time in prayer. You need to be in the Word more. You need to remember who you are in Christ. You need to remember how much He loves you. Remember His grace, His love, right? It doesn't matter what the problem is. The prescription's always the same. Get your eyes back on Jesus. Start trusting Him again. My marriage is struggling. Get your eyes back on Jesus. Spend more time in the Word. Spend more time in prayer. You know, my health, I'm having problems with my health. Get your eyes on Jesus. Amen? I'm having problems with my coworkers. Get your eyes on Jesus. The answer is always the same. And so the priest is going to come out and remind them. The battle's in front of them. He's going to prepare them. Look at verses 3 and 4. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of a battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Amen. I want to, again, highlighting verses, get your pen out. Three and four. That's good stuff. That means that we're not alone in the battle. We're never alone in the battle. God never lets us face the enemy by ourselves. This is the reason for courage, that God goes with you. Not that they had great military might and training. The priest didn't get up and go, okay, guys, you know how well you've been trained. You know what great stuff we've got. You know, we got a, man, we've been really working hard on that left flank thing. I think that's going to work really well. You know what I mean? He doesn't say any of that. He just says, you know what, guys, we're outnumbered. God's on our side. They got a lot more people. We got Almighty God. Don't worry about it. He's not going to leave you. He's going to fight for you. He's going before you. He's already promised the battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. He's already won. Just obey. And he's going to do great and awesome things. Man, I'll tell you what, nothing better. No military strategy in the world is as good as that. Amen? God is with us. God is going before us. When we walk in obedience to the Lord and trust in Him, we have nothing to fear. But Pastor Dave, didn't you say earlier that sometimes we walk in obedience and then we go through the worst trials of all? Do we have anything to fear even in the worst trial of all? We have nothing to fear. Our God is faithful. And He'll never leave us. Even if we're laying on our deathbed, the Lord is with us. We shouldn't be surprised to hear a priest encouraging the army. Why? Because this was a holy war. It was a holy war because the Canaanites were enemies of God. Direct enemies of God. And we'll talk about that more as we move on. But Canaan had been given ample time to repent, and now they were going to face God's righteous judgment. Now part of the preparation was not only fearless faith, but an undivided focus. The soldiers were to be fully committed to the battle. The priest encouraged the soldiers to face the enemy without fear. Look guys, you need to go out there and be fearless, because God is with you. But the officers told them to go back home if they had unfinished business. We're going to see that in the next few verses here. Because no officer wants to lead a distracted soldier whose mind and heart is elsewhere. I don't want, man, I don't want, you know, hey, stay home. And that's exactly what he's going to tell them here in just a minute. James 1.8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In 2 Timothy 2.4, it says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of his life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. If we're so caught up in the world, you know, people will say all the time, you've heard it, that people are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. I haven't met that person yet. I haven't met that person. So heavenly minded they're no earthly good. I haven't met them. I've met a lot of people that are so earthly minded they're no heavenly good. Amen? And what he's saying here is very clear that, okay, you need to be fearless, 
faithful and focused on God's plan. Now watch, he's going to give some exemptions here to three groups. He's going to give them a deferment to go home and not fight the battle. And I'll say there's some good in this too. I want you to see there's some encouragement from this, but also some exhortation for those who feel like God's calling them to be in leadership in the body of Christ. Look at verse 5. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go home and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Okay, so first of all, they're, they're mounting up. They're already outnumbered big time, right? Way more of the enemy than there is of them. There's seven cities, all of which are bigger than Israel, all of which have greater armies than Israel, all of which have greater weaponry than Israel, and they've got to go in and fight them. So the first thing he does, he starts telling people to go home. Now, is that what most military leaders would do? Absolutely not. We need every guy we can get. Can you hold a, you know, can you hold a stick? Get out of here, right? You know, can you throw a rock? How old are you? Five? That's good. Come on with us, right? <laughs> but look what he says here. You know what? If you've built a house and you have not time to dedicate, the word means to initiate. You haven't lived in that house with your family yet. You haven't had a chance to enjoy it. Then I want you to go home. I want you to go home and minister to your family. Go home and minister to your family. Go do that first. And you know what? That's our first ministry, is our family. And if our home isn't in order, we've got no business being out in the battle. We need to go home and fix that first. And so what he says to him is, you know what? You're going to take a year off, and you're going to go home, and you go be with your family right now. And you dedicate your house, and you get your house in order. And then we'll talk about the battle in a year. Why? Because God is concerned about our homes. God is concerned about what's going on in our first ministry as much, if not more so, than what's going on in the ultimate battle. The family needed him more than the battle did, and so he sent him home. Verse 6, Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go, return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. The second occasion was when a man had planted a vineyard. He'd done all the work in his occupation, but hadn't tasted the fruit of his labor. He said, go back and finish your job. Now again, we're going to see as we move on through this, that God's calling for a man specifically, but for all of us, is that he not only be the spiritual leader in his home, but that he be the provider for his home. The Bible says a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And as we're going to see here moving on, that God is more concerned with making sure those things are taken care of before he drags them out to do greater battle with the enemy. He's saying, you start right here, and you get these things in order first. Because if they're not in order, I don't want you here. Go home. Go home and fix that first. Go home and take care of that. And not not a punishment go home. It's a blessing to be the spiritual leader in your home. It's a high calling to be the the godly provider in your home. I've had people say to me, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I've had people say to me, well, you know, I can't really work a full-time job right now because I've got too much ministry stuff going on, so my family's not eating. Uh, Ministry first to your family, amen? That's where it starts. You minister to them first. And by the way, wherever you're working, that can be your mission field. You don't have to go to a mission field. Go to work and let, make that your mission field. Amen? So he says to them, you got a vineyard, you haven't tasted of it, you haven't felt the, had the fruits of your labor, go home. And again, not a great general. He's, we're outnumbered, you're sending people home. Can you see some guys there? Dude, we got no, we're outnumbered, why are you sending people home? God's with us. Don't worry about it. The more people I send home, the more God's going to get glorified. Amen? Because the less of us are going to be here, and then we'll know God did it. Remember Gideon? 
32,000 against a lot more than that. And what did the Lord He said, whoever's afraid, go home. 22,000 guys go, I'm out of here. See ya. They got 10,000 guys. He's still like, you know, that's just too many. 10,000 against whatever, hundreds of thousands. They still might think that they had something to do with it. Okay, whoever sips the Okay, 300 guys. Okay, now we can go fight them. We got 300. Yeah, that's right. And when they won, who got the glory? God did, amen? Nobody could say, those guys, 300 bad dudes. No, that's not what happened. What happened instead, they said, God is awesome. And so the same thing's happening here. He's sending guys home. We're getting ready to go. Send them home. That's a priority right now. Send them home. Verse 7. It says there, And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go, return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. Now, we know that in the Old Testament times, they had a one-year betrothal period prior to marriage. I'm a big believer in that, by the way. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to hold everybody to it. It's between you and the Lord. But if somebody came to me and said, how long should we? i say a year. year's good. Right? A lot of times people want to get married right now. You know that whole thing? I say, you're not in love. You're in heat. Slow down. You know what I mean? Too often it's, well, you've got to get married right now. Stop. Relax. You know, it's okay, you know. Too often the people like that, man, they're two, two months into their marriage, you're in my office. Man, I hate this guy. I didn't even know him. I told you that when you married him, right? One year betrothal period. And so you're betrothed to somebody. You haven't been able to get married. You guys are engaged. He says, oh, you're engaged. Okay. Well, you know what? You might die if you go out. So go home and be with your wife. For, and, you get, and it says in, Matthew, in Deuteronomy 24, they were given a one-year deferment. So go home and be with her for a year. Just go be your husband for a year. And then in a year, you can come back out into the battle. And so, again, these are not great military plans. You're sending all your soldiers home. You're already outnumbered. But what's the point? Prepared hearts for the battle. He's saying, I don't want a guy who's out here and the whole time he's fighting in the battle, he's thinking about his fiance at home. I never, you know, right? I don't want the guy thinking, man, I hope they pick the grapes because my kids won't eat if we don't, you know, right? He's thinking about that. You know, the house isn't quite ready yet. I hope it doesn't rain while we're gone because it's going to leak. And the, he said, you know, just go home. If you're not focused on being here, go home. Because he wants those who are focused completely and totally on the battle that is at hand. Three exemptions points to the fact that God does want us to enjoy the blessings of life, not just the battles. Amen? You know, a lot of people, I, you know, people come to me and they'll say, Pastor Dave, some guy told me he thought it was a sin that we have a softball team. I'm like, What? He's like, dude, man, we should be fasting and praying all the time. We should never have, you know, we shouldn't have a softball team. That's just wrong. I'm like, dude, relax already. You know what I mean? Should we fast and pray? Absolutely. But do you think that we have fellowship when we play softball? Yeah, amen? It's not just the battle. Sometimes God wants us just to rest in Him and enjoy fellowship. You know, the Lord had a lot of feasts in the Bible. You ever notice that? He was eating all the time. And the Lord sat around and ate. That's the Lord, amen? He's God. He got three-year mission. He's God. He was eating. And I know people, oh, man, I got time. I got time, you know, right? Well, slow down. It's okay. Be in ministry, but enjoy your walk with God. It's all right. It's all right for us as Christians. You know, Christians should have more joy than anybody, amen? We should have absolutely more joy than anybody. And we shouldn't be walking around like, like we've been sucking on a lemon. No, Christians should never smile or have any fun. Why? Because so many people are going to hell without Jesus. Well, I'm burdened for that too, but it's the joy of the Lord that renews my strength. Amen? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace. If I walk around looking like I've been sucking on a lemon, how many people are going to want to know my God? Oh, that guy's just really bummed out and dragging all the time. I want to know what's, what he's all about. Right? Wow, man, you're just so pious and just bummed out all the time. Tell me all about it. What's your burden? 
Oh, people want to see you in the middle when the layoffs are announced at work and everybody else is dying, and you're like, well, God's in control. Praise the Lord. Well, we get to see God work. Dude, what's up with you? Jesus, amen? That's when we have the great opportunity. God wants us to joy our homes, our occupations, and our spouses. And he didn't want any of the Jewish men to use their military responsibilities as an excuse to neglect their family's vineyard or their, fi- or their fiancé. You know, military service was important, but the Lord was more concerned that the men had the right priorities in life. You know what? When I look for people in ministry, I look at those three places first. I look at someone's home life. I look at how they're doing and providing for their family and what kind of employee they are. And then I look at their marriage. And those exact three things he tells them to take care of. Look, guys, before you go to battle, go get that fixed. Before you go to battle, you make sure that's where it needs to be. Before you decide you're going to spend 100 hours a week in ministry, go spend 100 hours a week with your wife. Amen? Because too often, it's that ministry that suffers. God set the qualifications for ministry. Have your house in order. Have your job and your finances in order. Have your marriage in order. They're all important ministries. 1 Timothy 3.5, which is the pastoral epistle. Paul writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he talks about the qualifications for someone in ministry. And he says, For if a man does not know how to rule in his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, there were others disqualified too. Look at verse 8. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his. So the guys who are afraid, send them home. Okay, you got a wife, you're, you're engaged? Go home. Your house isn't done? Go home. Your vineyard hasn't been picked yet? Go home. Oh, you're afraid? Go home. Go home. Now, who do they have left? That's, yeah, there you go. No, but let me say this. They probably had a lot less people left, but what they did have left were people that were focused on the battle. Amen? Did anybody was fearful? Did anybody was thinking about home or thinking about anything else? Like, okay, everybody else can go. I'm staying. I'm called. This is where I'm supposed to be. God's faithful. I want to be there. I want to watch God work. And I'm going to be in the center of His will, and I'm not missing this for anything. My house is in order. My family's fine. Everything's taken care of, and let's go get it. I want to be a part of this. You know, this reminded me of something that, you know, fear does make a weak army. And if you have one fearful person, they're very contagious. And we're to minister to the weaker brother, not take him out into battle with us. Right? God desires that the fearful ones stay home. If you don't, you know, the fear will spread and it will lead to disaster. It was the fearful spies that kept him out of the land of promise the first time, right? Well, I remember, you know, that the fearful people will, will speak and you know, of their own fears, and they'll be cynical, and they'll criticize because they're afraid. And I'll never forget, I used to take trips to Russia. I took seven of them, and I used to take pretty large groups. I remember one meeting we had with about 75 people in San Jose that were at least people who were initially interested in going. ended up taking 25 or so. But I remember some of the questions I would get, and these are always the people that I know are fearful, and I don't want them going. Because they started to ask you questions like, some people say, well, how much of an opportunity do we have to share? Oh, we're going to go into the schools? Great. We're going to, great. How cold is it going to be? It's going to be cold? Uh, Russia in the winter. Uh, yeah, it's going to be cold. How cold? Real cold. Oh, man. What are we going to eat when we're there? What are we going to eat? Uh, borscht and tea. Ready for that? How about that? Borscht and tea. Really? What's borscht? What's in borscht? Uh, where are we going to stay when we're there? What kind of lodging are we going to have? You know, can I talk to you when we're done? 
Go home. Go home. Can you imagine being 17 days in Russia in the freezing cold with someone like that? And the bus and the thing's hard and the seats. Stop, right? We came halfway around the world to preach Jesus to people. We don't need somebody who's moaning and whining and complaining all the time. And I've actually had people like that on missions trips, and I wish I could send them home. I'd give them something to do. Could you go count the number of cracks in the ceiling? Do something. Just go away because you're a drag. And the same is true here. He didn't want fearful people going with him into battle because they'd be whining. The same three, what? This is a group of three million whiners, right? There were the whiners in the wilderness, the wandering whiners in the wilderness, right? And now they're getting ready to enter in. He's like, you know what? I, this didn't work out with the whiners before. We can't take these people with us. Go home so it doesn't spread. You're fearful? Leave. We don't want you here. Now look what it says. I love this. And so, and so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they make captains of the armies to lead the people. So when did they pick the captains? After everyone else went home. Fearful. Home. Thinking about your, your, your patrol. Go home. Thinking about your house. Go home. Vineyard. Go home. You're afraid. Go home. Okay, now we can pick the captains. Right? Now that we have the people that are dedicated, that are motivated, that are here, that want to be in the battle, that know that they're called to be here, that aren't distracted, that aren't double-minded, okay, now we can find some people that we can use and we can, that can lead. God wants the brave and the willing, not the fearful and the divided. You know, the vol- and that's why, you know, this is a, the perfect example to me of why I never draft you guys into ministry. You notice there's no draft in Israel. It's a free, free will volunteer army. Right? You don't want to be here? Go. Go home. Fine. Right? Isn't that what he tells them all the time? That's what he tells them. Why? Because he wants people there who are called to be there. The same reason I don't drop, go up and say, you know, you ought to be involved in this ministry. You ought to be involved in that. If you're waiting for me to do that, it's never going to happen. I don't do that. Why? Because then I'm drafting you, and you might be fearful. I'm drafting you, and you might be thinking about your fiancé. I'm drafting you, you might be thinking about your job, Right? And the best thing for me to do is say, okay, guys, if that's where your heart is, go do that. And then who's left? And who comes up and says, I'm called. God's put it on my heart. I can't sleep at night. It's a burden on me. I have to be involved in this. Praise the Lord. Then we know it's God. Amen? Not because you're drafted by men, because the Holy Spirit moved in your heart. Want to be led, want to lead, be used more in the body of Christ. Enter the battle. You want to enter the battle? Go over the checklist. Here it is. Is your home in order? Start there. Start with your house. Your home in order? Are you enjoying the fruits of your labor, your job, your vocation? Are you providing for your family? Again, can't provide because you're too busy in ministry. That's not God. Period. Man who doesn't provide for his family, worse than a believer. All the way back in Genesis, you shall toil in the ground by the sweat of your brow to provide for your family. That's God's highest. And again, we can provide and be used where we're providing. And then, do you have love and unity and intimacy in your marriage? Do you have a faithful walk or a fearful one? Do you trust God in spite of the circumstances? Yes, then you can be an officer. No, go home and fix it. All four before you lead. An established home, provider, marriage, and faith. Now understand, these aren't works, but fruit of mature walk. If you're walking with God, these things will be a natural outpouring. You won't have to think about being kind to your wife. 
You won't think about providing for your family. It will be a joy and a get-to. You won't have to think about being faithful in the midst of trials. It'll just be an outpouring of who you've become as you walk with the Lord. This is preparation for the battle. Can you see the army he's putting together here? This is strong army. The battle belongs to the Lord, but God wants those who want to be in the battle. So we've seen the heart for the battle, the preparations for the battle. Now let's look at the instructions in the battle. Now when you go near a city to fight against it, this is verse 10, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that they accept your offer of peace and open to you, and open to you. Then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now this is new. You've never seen this anywhere in the Bible because it's never happened before. He's telling them before you go and wipe out an enemy. Now these are enemies outside of Canaan because they're going to go in and take the seven cities in Canaan. We'll see that in verses sixteen to eighteen, and they're not to even ask any questions. They're just supposed to go in and wipe them out. Now, the cities outside of Canaan, as they expand their territory, he says, I want you to go to them, and I want you to go to them and offer peace first. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that, militarily, prior to this, where you go out and you offer peace first. Hey, we're here, we want to offer you peace. Now, I want you to see something here. This would have to be the hand of God for them to accept. Here we are, we're smaller than you. We have less military stuff than you. You have a big, you know city with the fortress around it and we're just standing out here looking at you but we're offering you peace here's how it works you guys come serve us are you paying attention we're bigger than you we got more stuff than you hey were you paying attention ask the canaanites how that worked out ask ask the egyptians how that worked out right i mean because no doubt the word has spread amen people knew that what god was doing through the children of israel so he says go and bring the offer of peace first the outside cities. And if they accept it, then they would have to submit and come into a place of being a servant. Before judgment came, there was an offer of peace. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of the cross. Before judgment comes, there's an offer of peace to every single one of us through the Prince of Peace. And if we are to accept His offer of peace, we submit our lives to Him to serve Him with our whole lives. Amen? That's what this is a picture of. He comes and says, you know, if you want to have peace, we'll give you peace. We're going to bring judgment if not. But before we do, we're offering you peace. You come and be our servants. If you don't want to come and be our servants, then judgment is coming. The same is true with God. He says, I'll suffer and die. I paid the price. I've done it all for you. But I'm going to reach out to you and offer you peace. Now it's up to you to accept it or reject it. If you accept it, you say, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to give you my whole life. If not, then we bring righteous judgment upon ourselves. Verse 12. Now, if that city will not make peace with you, but wages war against you, then you shall besiege it. Now, the word besiege there is a word that means just to surround the city, to block it up on all four sides. They would cut off their supplies, and when they were weakened by thirst or hunger, they would either surrender or be conquered. So what happened was they're on the outside, they would just surround the city, and you know, when, when they, later when Joshua went to Jericho, they surrounded the city and marched around it. Remember that? Walls fell down. This time, they would just wait them out. We're right here. God's on our side. You guys surrender. You're going to be conquered. And so what would happen was, eventually, they would get to the place where they were conquered. Verse 13, And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. So their enemies surrender, attributed not to their military might or their courage or skill. Because what does it say there? And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands. It doesn't say when your great military power and might and your wonderful gifts 
do great things. We're not to ever touch the glory, you guys. Amen? Does anything have anything to do with us? No. Without Him, we can do nothing. And nothing means nothing. So if, if we're gifted in leading worship, if we're gifted in sharing our faith, if we're gifted in anything, God alone should get all the glory. Period. If you're nine years old and you hit a home run, give, it, go, give the glory to God. Amen? If you get a good grade in your test, praise God. God alone be all the glory. Right? He gave you the intellect. You were diligent, but He gave you the intellect. To Him be all the glory. God alone should receive all the glory. Their, Ill, Ill, their enemy's surrender was attributed not to their might, but to the power of God. And then it says, strike every male with the edge of the sword. They rejected God's peace, so what did they get? God's judgment. They, ought, they were offered peace, said, no, we're not interested. We don't care. Not interested. Here's peace. No, don't want it. Okay. Righteous judgment. Any, any surviving male, why did they kill all the men? Because if they didn't, they knew they'd have an enemy there forever. And he said, you can't have the enemy in your midst, because if you do, he will destroy you. So you must bring judgment upon him. Verse 14. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself. You shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. So the women and the children and the livestock were not killed. And all the plunder, all the things of value were given to those who entered into the battle. The food, the gold, the silver, the merchandise, the household goods, anything of value. These became the wages for the army. Now, why weren't the women and the children and the and the, and the livestock killed. Because they were not the ones who rejected the offering of peace. The, the offering of peace came to the men. Wives were submitted to them. The husband said, I'm not interested. You know, the men said, we're not interested. So guess what? They, they faced the judgment. Now the women and the children were brought in. They were, they were called in to serve in Israel, but now they would be exposed to the true God, the true and living God. And so this was grace in the midst of God's judgment. He brought judgment upon those who rejected peace, but he reached out to those who had not had, had, not had an opportunity to accept or reject it yet. That's our God, amen? He gives everybody an opportunity. The men had rejected it, they faced the judgment. The women had not, they were given an opportunity to come and live amongst the children of Israel to know the true and living God. Verse 15, Thus you shall do to all the cities which are far from you, which are not the cities of these nations. These are cities outside of Canaan, the ones far away. If they offer peace and they accept it, they submit to Israel and they become servants. If they reject it, the cities destroyed, the males are killed, the women and children are enslaved, and their goods are plundered. The world's wealth, might, and wisdom cannot stand up to the righteous judgment of God. Amen? Verse 16, the command to utterly destroy the Canaanites. Let's read verse 16 and 17. But of the cities of these people, which of the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, what land is that? That's Canaan. The promised land says, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. Is that pretty clear? Nothing that breathes remains alive. By the way, I, I don't know why, it's a totally random thought. You know, people say that like vegetables breathe. They didn't kill any vegetables here, so they're not breathing. Amen? I mean, oh, you pull broccoli, it screams. No, wait, stop it. Way too much Santa Cruz. Keep Santa Cruz weird. I think we got that handled, right? You shall let nothing breathe that remains, nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. Now look what it says here. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God commanded you. So the previous commands that had already come, superseded these. He said, now you're going to go to those outlying cities that have not had an opportunity. 
But those who have rejected me and rejected me for hundreds of years, which all these people had, hundreds of years, generation after generation, rejecting God, idol worship, sorcery, witchcraft, nothing to do with God, rejecting Him. Finally, God said, okay, here comes righteous judgment. Hundreds of years of warnings, not heeded. Continued service to false gods. But God's severe judgment was due to their wickedness and repeated rejection of opportunities to repent. Remember this, God's grace does not equal God's permission. Sometimes people think, well, God hasn't done anything. I've been doing this for years and God's never done anything to me. It's sin. If it's sin, it's sin, amen? And God's grace does not equal God's permission. If you're doing something outside of God's will, according to God's word, you need to stop. Even if God's been gracious up to this point, doesn't mean He'll continue to be gracious tomorrow. While He suffers long, He will not suffer always. Amen? He's a faithful God and so merciful, but righteous judgment will come. Verse 18. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So why do I have to wipe them out? One, it's righteous judgment, but two, to prevent them from teaching Israel to do the same. God knew how weak the Israelites were. And he said, if you start camping with idol worshipers, you're going to be worshiping idols. There were no idol worshipers at Sinai, and they made an idol anyway. They did that all by themselves. What would they do surrounded by idol worshipers? They'd be right back in. He said, you know what? Righteous judgment, and you can't be around those guys. You've got to remove them. Because if you don't, you'll become just like them. As Christians, we are put to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and we are to remove that which would cause us to fall into temptation. The Bible says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Is that God telling us to mutilate our bodies? No. What he's saying is, take whatever steps are necessary to keep from continuing on in your sin. If you're struggling with pornography on the internet, get rid of your computer. But I need my computer. No, you need to walk with God in holiness is what you need. Amen? More than you need a computer. If you're struggling with alcohol, get it out of your house and be accountable. If you're str- whatever you're struggling with, whatever brings temptation, remove it. Take it out. If you're right, I offend you, pluck it out. And what he's saying here very clearly is you've got to remove these guys because their abominations are going to impact you if you don't take them far from you. Their abominations, as we talked about last week, included idolatry and witchcraft and incest and soothsaying, all done in worship of their God. Bad company corrupts good morals every single time. Don't think, can you hold a fire to your bosom and not be burned? Absolutely not. Can you hang out with the world and not become like it? Absolutely not. We minister to the world and we have no fellowship with it. And he says there, and you sin against the Lord your God. You hang out with them and you sin against their God. By following the world and serving their gods is sin against the true and living God. Again, while we live in the world, we're not supposed to have the world impacting us. We're to impact the world. Our standard for living is not the culture. It's the Bible. Amen? It's not what everybody else is doing. That's the biggest cop-out ever. It's 2005, man. Brighten up. You know, I mean, everybody's living together. Why can't we? Because God said not to. That's why. But everybody does. I don't care if everybody does it. It's not right. God's word is the authority, amen? And not, not the culture, not what men say, not what our friends think. Sin in our lives brings about total destruction. Unsaved, and again, we should reach out to those around us like they reached out with hearts of peace. We are to do the same. Come with peace first to those who don't know God. 
Share with them the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Not self-righteous, not judgmental. But again, while I minister to the world, I shouldn't have fellowship with it. They shouldn't be my best friends. My best friends need to be people who love God as much as I do. Amen? Or more. You know who I want to hang out with? People who love God more than I do. Don't you? Don't you want people more on fire for God than you are? That's what I want. Why? Because they're going to exhort me in my walk. They're going to encourage me in my faith. They're, going to be, they're not going to entice me to sin. If they see me blowing it, they're going to come alongside me and exhort me. Last two verses. Do not destroy that which would bear fruit. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use them in the siege. For a tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees of food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. Okay, when they came and besieged the city, they had to build. Sometimes it took years. They would surround the city for a long time, and they, would build, they had to build different things. They had to build things for military purposes. They had to build buildings to stay in. And so they would cut, chop trees down. But he says, the ones bearing fruit, don't cut those down because those can continue to feed you in the future. You're going to overtake this land. This land's going to become your possession. Don't cut down the fruit trees. What in the world has that got to do with us? Don't cut down the fruit. Oh, next time I'm besieging the city, I won't cut down the fruit trees. <laughs> I'll remember that. Let me write that. Besieging city, don't cut down any fruit trees, right? What is he talking about? For them, it was a physical battle. For us, it's a spiritual one. And we are not to wave our axe around indiscriminately in the spiritual battle. Some Christians do that. And what he's talking about here is don't cut down the fruit trees, the things that bear fruit. Other believers, other denominations, other churches. Don't walk around swinging an axe indiscriminately and whacking off the branches of your brother in Christ. Amen? or walking off the branches of other denominations or other people walking with the Lord. He says, when you're besieging the city, understand that fruit is a blessing to you. Understand that them being there should be an encouragement to you and come alongside you going forward into the future. So don't wield that axe indiscriminately as you're in the battle. Make sure you understand what you're saying and what you're doing. Don't bring harm to those who are on your side. We should be picking fruit or learning from them, not cutting them down. Amen? Can we all learn something? spiritually. I can learn something spiritually from someone who's been saved an hour and a half. I absolutely believe that. I believe that I need to be teachable. We all need to be teachable. We all can be taught. We all can grow. And so instead of cutting somebody down, let's learn, let's take from them, learn from them, be ministered to by them instead of wielding our acts indiscriminately. So in conclusion, a heart for the battle. Preparation for the battle. What do we need to do to be prepared? Have the proper heart faith and focus have our home our provision our marriage and our faith in order those are fruits of a mature walk and then instructions for the battle god's rules of war as i put it first offer peace always come bringing peace first rejection brings about righteous judgment and for our own lives just as he talked about the abomination and removing them we should remove the sin and temptation in our own lives and make sure that we don't wield our axe and cut down those who the Lord loves, and those who God would use to minister to us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that even in instructions for the battle, there's so many clear applications for our lives thousands of years later. The living, breathing word of God, we just love it so much. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us 
to look at the first ministries and be faithful there first. Faithful in our homes first. Faithful to our children first. Faithful to our marriages first. Faithful to those things, Lord, before we reach out and try to do things outside of those first and primary ministries. Father, I pray we be faithful in providing as you've given us gifts, healthy hands, healthy feet, healthy minds. May we use them to provide for our families as you are the great provider. Lord, I pray also, Lord, as we go out into the spiritual battle of life, that, Lord, we would be those who are prepared, who walk in the center of your will. Lord, who do not, do not go around, again, trying to do things in our own might, but waiting upon you, resting in you, bringing glory to you. Father, we also do want to lift up the other churches here in Santa Cruz County. Father, I have such a burden for the several churches that don't even have a pastor right now. Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name that, Lord, rather than cutting these people down, we would be those who administer to them and encourage them and be unified with them. And, Lord, we do pray you would bring godly pastors with vision and a love for the sheep that can minister to the people in these churches all over town. And, Father, I pray for us. Help us, Lord, to remove the things that would tempt us, remove the things that would draw us away from you, Lord, and to keep our eyes on you at all times, that we not be overwhelmed by our circumstances, but, Lord, that our eyes and our heart and our faith would be in you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We worship you, Lord. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.